thank Holder for his kind words and everybody for the opportunity to come and speak. Except Steve. I assume he's the one that made the schedule. <laughs> and I'm sure he'll let me know about it. My topic today is obvious relevance. Somebody may be saying, well, that's just more or less common sense. On that, I would agree with. But unfortunately, it's common sense that's too often ignored. And you can look at a passage of scripture and say, and you can automatically, most times, tell exactly who the intended audience was. And then at other times, you may think to yourself, well, I'm not quite sure. But you'll study to find out who it was. But then there's times that, and I'm guilty of this just like everybody else, that you will read yourself right into a passage that was not intended directly for you. Common sense, right? We all make this mistake. It just happens. How do we correct it? Right? We correct our thinking on these things. I remember seeing a cartoon, and it's probably been a few months back. <laughs> This guy was standing in front of another person. And he was talking to that person right in front of him, but he was pointing to the person or the people behind him. He was not talking about the people, but he was talking to the person directly in front of him. So who was the intended audience? I know it's a trick question, right? Like I said, Steve made the schedule. <laughs> I've defined it just simply as this the relevance of a statement or event to the initial audience. To whom does it apply? What did it mean to them? In case in point, Isaiah 39. I didn't do the PowerPoint thing, so I kind of like to see people and hear people with different pages, especially when you're in danger of falling asleep. Trust me, I've got the clear eyes guy voice, so it's going to be easy for you to fall asleep. Isaiah 39, 1 through 8. At that time, Merodach Baladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and the precious ointment, and all of his armor. All that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Now, you, many of you are familiar with this situation. You understand what's going on here. That uh, Hezekiah is sort of boasting. But at the same time, Isaiah is going to let him know that this futile boasting that you're doing is going to cost your ancestors all that you just showed Babylon. Because in verse 3 it says, Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What do these men say and where did they come from? Or 
from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, they came to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what did they sing in your house? Like the interrogation part, right? So Hezekiah answered and said, well, they've seen all that, that is in my house. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. If you are a king in Israel back in those days, and a prophet comes to you asking you questions, you know something's up to begin with. But then all of a sudden he says, Thus said the Lord. Then you just kind of want to shrink down in your seat, right? I know if I was Hezekiah, I would have. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated in this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. They shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, Notice this. The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. Hezekiah, you were just told that your, your kids and grandchildren are going to be carried away captive by a foreign nation whom you just got through showing all the treasures of your kingdom. We mean it's good. But it's a matter of that they have. See why he says that. For he said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. Now that may sound selfish, of Hezekiah, but in truth, what's going on here is Hezekiah recognizing that I, what Isaiah is prophesying is not directly for Hezekiah, but for a time later for his descendants. Our first text this afternoon is going to be Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. You know what's interesting is sometimes when I'm in other places speaking, aside from my voice, <laughs> you'll hear people groaning. Moaning and groaning, just kind of grunting. <clears throat> really? Like, do we really have to go to the Old Testament? Do we have to study something that we're not real sure about? I mean, do we have to read it and understand it immediately? And you'll just hear that sigh and that groan and that grunt. It's like, folks, from Genesis all the way to Max. Well, the Max aren't inspired. But from Genesis all the way to Revelation, chapter 22. It's one book. Now, I'm speaking to the choir. I know you, you folks agree with it. But it is their legion out there who don't. Deuteronomy 32. I'm not going to go through the entire chapter because I talk slow and uh, you'll definitely be asleep. But I don't have that much time. This is a massive chapter. I think it's got some 53 verses. 52. But nevertheless, it is a long way from beginning to end. What I do want to <clears throat> focus in on is I can get this to be still The latter part of the chapter, verse 34, all the way down to verse 
3. But before we go there, somebody said, you said Deuteronomy 32. Yes, I did. How many of you would just jump right into this text without really looking at the surrounding context? Understanding what Deuteronomy 31 is talking about and then later on the blessings of Deuteronomy 33. Not, would you not read it all together? I mean, you kind of want to go back to chapter 31 and say, what's this about? You know, what is the context, the setting of this song? And that's what it's called. We would go back to verse 14 of chapter 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua, present yourselves in the tabernacle of me, that I may inaugurate him. So here's the exaltation of Joshua. Because Moses is to be told that he's going to, be, he's going to die. He's going to rest with his fathers, his ancestors. Someone has to replace him. So Moses and Joshua came and or went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of Eden. Now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud. The pillar of the cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers. This people will rise up like a harlot, that's spiritual adultery, with the gods of the foreigners of the land. What land? The one that they go to possess. Where are they going to be among them? They will forsake me and break my covenant, my heaven and earth, which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be aroused against them. In that day I will forsake them and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured, meaning even if the trouble shall befall them. So that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? Now think about that. Think about that. Have not, has not this happened to us because God is not with us? Yes. He's turned His back on you. Just like you turned your back on you. So in verse 18, pick it up. And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they have done. And then they turn to other gods. What's the first commandment? You're going to have none of Yeah. Now therefore write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths. That this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. You're starting to see something develop here, aren't When I have brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, Chapter 34 of this, this same book is going to tell us that Moses, Moses ain't going into the promised land. But here's Moses going to recite this song in the hearing of the children of Israel. Following me so far? Now, this land of milk and honey is the one he swore to their fathers, their ancestors. Abraham. And they have eaten and filled themselves their own bath, then they will turn to other gods and serve them. We don't know what that's like, do we? When everything's so comfortable and so smooth, and we just kind of feel a little lazy, relax. They will provoke me and break my covenant. Then it shall be when many evils and troubles have come upon them. 
that this song, which Moses is fixing to recite right here, will testify against them as a witness. For it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants. I know the inclination of their behavior today. Even before I have brought them to the land of which I swore to give them. Now, I want you to notice the grace of God in that passage right there. God says, I know what they're going to do. I know exactly how they're going to treat me. I know exactly how they're going to treat one another. I know exactly how they're going to exalt these other so-called little demigods above me. But I'm still giving them an inheritance. Therefore Moses wrote this song, verse 22, the same day and taught it to the children of Israel. And he inaugurated Joshua, the son of Nun, son of Nun, and said, Be strong and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land of which I swore to them, and I will be with you. Alright. Jump down to verse 29 for time's sake. For I know, this is Moses, I know that after my death, you will become utterly corrupt. And turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days. Literally, when you follow the Apostle Peter's pattern of interpreting this phrase from the Hebrew to the Greek, and in the Septuagint, it is that way. It says last days. Just like Peter had reiterated what Joel had prophesied. Peter called it the last days in Acts chapter 2. Speaking of uh, Joel's prophecy from Joel chapter 2. Same phrase. In the last days, because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord and provoke him in anger to the work of your hands. Then Moses spake in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were done. Until they were finished. And Unlike Moses, I'm not going to do this for the sake of body and its relevance. We are not going into a promised land that our ancestors were promised. Brethren, if you understand the fulfillment, you're in that land right now. That's what Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4 is teaching us. There remained a Sabbath, keeping of the Sabbath for the children of God. That's you and I living in the promised land today. That promised inheritance that God, Yahweh, the Father, was going to give to His children. Foreshadowed by this right here. So what we're going to do is we're going to... There's something I wanted to bring up. I told myself I wasn't going to do this, but I can help. It's, it's a great example. Of, of how this passage is thought of and treated and considered in the minds of the church of Christ today and, and many other groups and their preachers. This song of Moses in the uh, 2020 Neubauer Reeves debate. I'm sure most of you saw that. One of the participants is sitting right over here. In case y'all didn't know this is over Neubauer. On his phone. <laughs> I forgot to send in my radio program for Sunday. So <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the director of the radio program just told me where's my program. I can send it. Sorry. In that debate, Brother Bruce Reeves 
had they had this uh, he had this chart on the screen, and on this chart, right about here. Well, the chart, sorry, the chart was about Deuteronomy 32, and all the prophecies found in this song of Moses. And right about there on the chart, oh, should have brought it. I know. If you want to just look it up on YouTube or on Facebook, it's the Reeves Third Affirmative during that debate. Mr. Reeves put a chart concerning Deuteronomy 32 and how all of these prophecies and what I found so interesting is it's going by similarity of language. Similarity of speech. Which they condemn us for. But aside from that, he goes into that prophecy of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32 and he traces most of what he could find throughout the prophets and says, well, this is when that prophecy was fulfilled. Now, if you fill something up to the rim, are you putting another drop in there? That's, you know, I'm maybe simple-headed. Well, I know I'm simple-headed. I'm maybe just a little simple-minded about this. But that's how I understand fulfillment. Once you fill it up to the rim, you can't add another drop. You're not going to be able to add more fulfillment to it, right? So full for lunch. <laughs> I really don't need another dog. Well, fulfilled, right? All right. So, if in fact Mr. Reeves was right, and he's not, and his chart, defending his doctrine, is totally correct, and it was not, that was fulfilled back in the days of Israel as a covenant nation living in the promised land, and so on and so forth has nothing at all to do with the last days. But yet, here we have Moses in chapter 31, verse 29 saying, last days. They've had any latter days. Mr. Reeves, in his little box on that, that chart, had labeled the prophecy of Deuteronomy 32 itself as a general description of the outcome of God's people if they rebelled. Sounds good, don't you? Logical. Makes sense. Yeah. I would agree with it. It was a general description of what would happen to them if they rebelled against God. But it was not something that was so ambiguous that it did not have a certain generation in mind. And I'll show you exactly what I'm talking about here in a second. Was Moses just being ambiguous? Was God being just ambiguous when He says, you speak this song in the hearing of all the people? Just general or specific. There's, there's no intended meaning to this. It's just, they're going to do what they're going to do. You just be sure and let them know that when they're getting their butts spanked, that's me doing it. Is that what God is saying through Moses here? Obviously not. Obviously not. And I'll tell you why. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 5. Let's read it together. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 5. They have corrupted themselves. They're not His children because of their blemish. And perverse 
and crooked generation. Anybody heard those words in the New Testament? You heard it on the day of Pentecost, didn't you? Acts chapter 2 and verse 40. Old King James, an untoward generation. New King James are perverse. Right? So if Mr. Reeves is right, and all of this had its fulfillment back in the days of the prophets before Malachi prophesied his last, what in the world is Peter talking about? Or how about the Lord Himself? Matthew 16, 4, Matthew 17, 17. When He talks about them being a, uh, a wicked and adulterous generation. Does He know what He's talking about? I would say so. How about, uh, I already mentioned Acts 2, 40. How about Paul in Philippians 2, verse 15? They are a crooked and perverse Nation. Nation. If you look throughout all of the prophets, you're going to find every nation under heaven mentioned being judged by God at one point or another. You're going to find it. You're going to find this nation of Israel being judged multiple times, right? My contention is simple. Paul says nation. Because he is making sure they know that they are that nation. It is their turn for judgment. It's not Rome's turn for judgment. It's not uh, Greece's turn for judgment. It's not time for North America's turn for judgment. It's time for their judgment. They're a proven and perverse nation. Look at verse 11. As an eagle stirs up its nest, over, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. And then the next verse. So the Lord alone led me. There was no foreign God with me. How about that? For care, protection, provision. Yahweh giving that to them. But does that sound like anything you've ever heard in the New Testament? Maybe something that the Lord said to him. Matthew 23, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often I would have... And you know the rest. You know the rest. You think the Lord was right there applying Deuteronomy 32, verse 11? You betcha. How about verse 21? They provoke me to jealousy by what is not a God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. But, God says, I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. Have you read that before in your New Testaments? Is there a purpose for which the Apostle Paul made that statement and applied it to his generation? Or is this just one of those general, ambiguous, Johnny come lately prophecies that you could use at any time for any reason? Does Paul have an audience in mind? Yes, he does. The same audience that God did when he gave it to Moses for Deuteronomy 32. 
I'll tell you why. Back up to verse 20. He said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be for their perverse generation. Children, who is no faith? Matthew 17, 17. What their end will be. Somebody says, wait a minute. You know, I read not too long ago in Ezekiel 7 that the, the end, the end has come upon my people, God says through that, that prophet. So which end is it? He's answering this if we'll just let it. If we'll not just, just not jump to conclusions. He's giving us which end he's talking about. Not just some ambiguous run-of-the-mill end. Verse 29 is the letter. Look at verse 35. Roy, you brought this up earlier. Well, actually, verse 34 is this not laid up in store with me? Sealed up among my treasures. And that's a great point on the, that which is stored up. Great point on that. I'd like to add to it, or excuse me, point out how the Apostle Paul added to that. Peter said it, but Peter was not alone. I get to it. Somebody says, oh, there's a, a lull. It's time to go to sleep. <laughs> we get that short guy, put rambling. We go to sleep, be good. Listen to this. One of my favorite passages in Scripture. Because when you're teaching the lost what the gospel is. This, this really brings out the purpose of the gospel. Romans 2 and verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of His goodness? Forbearance, long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. The goodness, His long-suffering, His patience, His endurance with us. So imperfect. Beholding His goodness leads us to repentance. We know this firsthand. We saw the love, grace, and mercy of God and He came in faithful obedience to His gospel. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath, revelation the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. There's that treasure. They're opening God's storehouse. This generation. This generation. What is it? Three times in Matthew 24? This generation. This generation. This generation. Not one which is afar off. Some ambiguous generation some general audience no, but this generation as the Lord said to them 
It's sealed up among his treasures. He says, vengeance is mine. Their foot will slip. Here's another time statement. In time. I realize most of our translations have the word do there. In due time. And you make of that what you will. But it is a specific time. The Greek word is chronos. In a specific time. A set time. For the day of their calamity is at hand. And the things to come hasten upon him. Oh boy, here we go. Howard Dan loves that. He loves that passage right there, and I'll tell you why. He's used it against numerous brethren. He used it against Holder, tried to use it against Holder in debate twice. He tried to use it, uh, I think one day when he was arguing with Roy as well, on Facebook post. Don't quote me on this. He used it against me. You guys are always saying that that hand always means within reach. It always means a hand. What do you do with Deuteronomy? Or, uh, yeah, Deuteronomy 32, verse 35 and verse 36. Specifically, verse 35. What do you do with it? We pay close attention to it. That's what we do. That's right. We're not, we're not just being trying to be uh, humorous with it. In due time. The day of their calamity is at hand. When? In due time. If this was at hand, Moses would be suffering from these same things. It was that close. The things to come hasten upon them. Moses would have this to deal with. Moses would be partaker in this. But Moses has already been told, you're going to rest with your ancestors. For the Lord will judge His people and have compassion on His servants. When He has seen that their power is gone, there is none remain bond or free. The time must also stop. You've got 10 to 15 minutes. I ain't even made it out of doing around the 13. Silly. The Lord will judge His people. Now wait a minute. I thought He's a God of love, right? He's a, a God of mercy and kindness. And yes, all that's true, obviously. But He's not scared to judge His people when they forsake Him and they turn their back on Him and start serving and worshiping their gods. They've got to come. Now which generation is it? Still too gentle, maybe, huh? Okay. We've already noticed chapter 31, verses 16 through 22. I haven't proven anything yet. I haven't proven that this is the first century generation, have I? No, I have not. But what you're fixing to see is going to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is not these people who are fixing to go in and possess the promised land. As some would like to say, you know, well, it says it's at hand, that means it's fixing to happen to them, right? What do you guys do with that? You look at verse 29 of chapter 31 as we already have seen. It's the latter days. You look at verse 20 of chapter 32. It says they're in, right? They're in, right? Not y'all's in, as we say in Texas. He would be saying that to them. He would look at, be looking at them reciting this song and saying, you're in. But he doesn't do that, does he? 
He says, their end, like a generation later on to come. Their latter end, verse 29, and obviously verse 35, in that due time, in that appointed set time. Interestingly enough, in Revelation chapter 9, and I won't be here long, this uh, massive army that had been prepared was prepared for a certain day. Let me find the passage because I always lose this. I need to outline what I need to do. I need to underline it or something. <clears throat> this was a number, numbered army that was prepared for the hour, the day, month, and year. Revelation 9 and verse 15. Now, if that's not the description or biblical definition of a set appointed time, I don't know what is. That's narrowing it down. This is what Moses is saying through this passage. In that time, when their foot shall slip, their day of their calamity is at hand. Now, something else I want you to notice. Somebody still might be saying, when is this generation? Look at verse 43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people, for He will avenge the blood of His servants and render vengeance to His adversaries. He will provide atonement for His land and for His people. I know there's a multitude of English translations out there that differ on this verse. But the cleansing, the idea of atonement, the idea of purging, is in this verse in every one of those translations. It will be in the time when the Lord provides atonement for His people. The blood of bulls and goats didn't do that. However, the blood of Christ does. You say I'm after the 2.30? Well, 3.30. No, 3.30, right? You've got it. Paul was a little man. He spoke till midnight. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that would be nice. We'd probably get horse by the end of it. We got no one to raise up anybody, though. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. And I'm not worthy at all. Daniel chapter 12. Somebody says, oh boy, here goes prayers. They're going to Daniel chapter 12. We're in trouble now. I'm not going to spend the rest of my time in this chapter, but I do want to point something out. Daniel 12, verse 4. Shut up the words, or seal the book, till the time of the end. Verse 9. The words are closed up, sealed until the time of the end. Verse 13. Till the end, end of days. You notice how there's a definite, de definitive article in front of end in every one of those passages? You think the angel was trying to get something across to Daniel so that he could get across to others? Obviously. It's a certain definitive 
end, not some ambiguous general end, as some like to say. See, as somebody so wisely pointed out earlier about the silence of heaven, is that not how most treat the word of God when they come to a passage they can't just they just can't understand it? Well, it just means for 30 minutes there's not going to be women in heaven. No silence. It's so true. It's such a good point in how I'm guilty of it before. But how some men still to these days, if they don't understand it, you know, if you can joke about it, it lessens the blow and the guilt of the lack of understanding and the lack of study to understand. Daniel would rest. Daniel would sleep until the end of the days. Daniel would arise until his inheritance. That's just a summation of that chapter. But it's also a summation of the time of the end. When the power of the holy people was going to be completely shattered. What was it that was stated in Deuteronomy 32 verse 35? When he sees that their power is gone. When would that be? Daniel says, or actually the angel says to Daniel, it's going to be at the end, the end of days. Ephesians chapter 3, and I'll turn through this, it's going to take long enough. We know this New Testament pretty good, but that Old Testament, you know, we still got to do a little study in it to get a little bit better understanding as to what's going on. You know, I wasn't raised Hebrew, even though I'm probably about the height of what the average Hebrew was. I wasn't raised Hebrew. My mama used to say that she was born the same. We were born of the Jewish tribe of Naphtali. <laughs> Can't prove it, but nevertheless. My mom, she had her own ideas. <laughs> nevertheless. Ephesians chapter 3. Listen to what Paul says. Just, just casually listen. Considering Deuteronomy 32 in your minds. For this reason I, Paul, prisoner Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation, that's like an administration, a dispensing of the grace of God which was given to me for you. How that by revelation He made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly, briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ. Now we get this. Paul, we have to read it before we can understand your knowledge and the mystery. The mystery revealed is no longer something that's concealed. It's, it's no longer a mystery. Because it's been made known. It's not some secret. Except for those who don't have eyes to see nor ears to hear. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. As it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. Now turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And listen to verse 3 and follow. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according 
To His abundant mercy has begotten us again. Anybody know what begotten us again means? He's caused you to be born again. Unto a living hope, right? Born from above, right? Through what? He tells us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. <clears throat> to and what? Inheritance. What were we looking at that they were fixing to be partakers in in Deuteronomy 32? I know we didn't read all the way through. But there was an inheritance that they were fixing to receive, right? Incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away. Reserved where? Heaven. For you. Right? Oh boy, it's still reserved in heaven for us, ain't it? Or is it? Is it? Revelation 21. Nobody listen up to uh, Brother Roy. <laughs> you seen it. You read it with your own two eyes while it was up here on the screen. That bride adorned her. <clears throat> that church adorned as a bride for her husband. Came down. That's an inheritance. Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the what? Deuteronomy 31 29. In this you greatly rejoice, so now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. What is a major theme that runs all the way from Genesis chapter 3 throughout the rest of Scripture? Having sin, what needs to be done about it? That's, yeah. But what, what about Cain? What did he do to his brother? That was chapter 4, Genesis 4. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> There's the problem. Yeah, not, not bad. Good point. Yeah. All right. Uh, once a rocket scientist, always a rocket scientist. <laughs> uh, so Cain does what? He kills his brother, right? He's a murderer. He's a murderer. He martyrs his brother, right? Abel's sacrifice is accepted. Cain's is not. Cain does what? You Mr. Goody Two Shoes, and he kills him, right? You totally do, right? He kills him. So you have the same thing taking place amongst God's people, not just the the Gentiles and all the non-Israelite tribes, or, uh, yeah, peoples from Genesis ten, persecuted the Israelite. But you do have uh, Israelites persecuting, putting to death Israelites. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than that of your precious, though it be tried, tested by fire, what's that? Being grieved by various trials, may be found unto praise, honor, and glory at the apocalypsis, revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believe it, you rejoice with joy unspeakable. Amen. Oh. That grace of God, it leaves us speechless, doesn't it? In full of glory, 
receiving the end, that is the gold and the aim, the telos, of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired, search carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he testified for him the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The sufferings of Christ, what followed after that? The inheritance, right? The glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not unto themselves, but to us, Peter, Peter says, were they ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel. To you by the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, things which angels desire to do. So here's Peter saying, they prophesied, but their immediate audience was not the recipient. You want to Peter says. It's the exact same thing that Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3. If you notice, just a casual reading through Ephesians 3, you can make the connection. And I say this one. Brethren, I've got an inheritance. I'm not waiting on some patch of real estate somewhere. I've got an inheritance. Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. Is it not? I know it goes on to say unless we also look for the Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to change our corrupted body and make it like unto His incorruptible body. I realize that. But if we look back in hindsight, we can see what they were looking forward to and leave it there rather than trying to hijack their what is that word? Eschaton? That fancy word that everybody uses? Let's not take away from their end times. It's audience relevance. What did it mean to them first before it means anything to us? Thank you for your time, and I'm glad that I still see all eyes of them. <laughs> must have done something right.